This is The Bright Idea. The podcast from Stanford Law School that highlights some of the most promising and inspirational work in environmental sustainability from around the world. I'm Buzz Thompson, a professor at Stanford Law School and your host for The Bright Idea. We are beginning this series by talking to past winners of Stanford Law School's Bright Award. The Bright Award is an annual environmental award given to individuals who have dedicated their careers to improving sustainability and conservation. Stanford Law School alumnus Ray Bright established the Bright Award with the goal of recognizing the winner's prior work and extending that work into the future. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with the 2019 Bright Award winner, Aisha Khan. In giving Ms. Khan the Bright Award, Stanford called her a mountain guardian who is combating climate change while promoting economic resilience in high altitude mountain ranges of Pakistan. A resident of Islamabad, Pakistan, Ms. Khan is the founder and chief executive officer of the Mountain and Glacier Protection Organization, which implements on the ground projects to improve climate and economic resilience in the remote high altitude regions of Pakistan. She also founded and serves as the executive director of the Civil Society Coalition for Climate Change, a network of organizations and individuals working to promote climate-related adaptation in Pakistan. Ms. Khan's work, however, extends far beyond her role as a mountain guardian and promoter of climate adaptation. Over the past two decades, Ms. Khan has also spent countless hours in development work, helping to reduce the vulnerability of unserved and underserved communities in multiple regions. Ms. Khan, welcome to The Bright Idea. Thank you very much, Professor. It is great to have you here. I want to start, for those who are not privileged enough to be here for the Bright Award ceremony last year, by asking you about a trip that you took in 2001 to Pakistan's Karakoram Range, the grand glacier-filled home of K2. I remember you describing the trip as perhaps the turning point in your consciousness about environmental sustainability. Could you tell our listeners a little about that trip and how it changed your perspective on issues of environmental sustainability? I'll go back 20 years in time because when I first went into the Karakorams, I was not a dedicated environmentalist. I just went there as an adventure seeker, looking for some excitement and for adventure and pitting myself against nature and see how I handle the elements. And it was a journey of discovery for me because it's there that I was exposed, I think perhaps for the first time in my life to really raw nature in its true wilderness. And that is where it impacts you the most when you're sitting at 15,000 feet altitude and you look around you and all you see is snow and glaciers. 
and you realize the power of nature. And at the same time, when you see the environmental degradation over there, somehow it disturbs you more deeply than when you see pollution in the cities. And that is when I resolved that if I love mountains and nature so much, I need to do something about it. I can't just come here as a tourist and go back and forget about this. And that is you know, where my work started. And over time, because my association with the mountain communities in that region was so intense, I think something kept pulling me back. I can't quite describe what it was, but every year I kept going back. And it started up with cleanup clean campaigns and then, then it evolved. It evolved into community concerns and about building resilience and doing everything that I do today. When I introduced you, I mentioned that you founded and are chief executive officer of the Mountain and Glacier Protection Organization. Could you talk a bit about what that organization does? We actually operate at two levels. We operate at the grassroots level and at the policy level. And we feel that combining our field experience with policy advice serves as an intersectional function that gives us our unique advantage. We strengthen the adaptive resilience of unserved and underserved communities, which you've already shared with the listeners, to the impacts of climate change. And we do this by empowering communities. We work through them and we help them to plot their own development trajectories. We organize them uh, into representative bodies and we build their capacities for local stewardship. We also put in place an institutional mechanism that ensures inclusivity with a minimum of 40% female participation in decision-making and a strong sustainability component that is anchored in community ownership. Two things that you just mentioned are the importance of women in the work that you do and also the importance of the community. I'd like to talk about both of those two points. Could you start by talking a bit more about the ways in which you try to involve women in your work? Essentially, all the projects that we do, they are need-based, they're demand-driven. So we get a request from the community to say, this is the priority that we need in our development work. So if you can support and assist, then we ask them to make a community organization. So we go in there with what we call a social mobilizer. And we organize that community through an electoral process because different positions have to be filled in by the community, like the president, the general secretary, procurement officer, finance officer, et cetera, monitoring, evaluation, ONM. Uh, and then the only condition that we have is that there should be 40% representation of women in that body, that community organization. Therefore, when plans are being made or decisions are being made, they're part of it. And the projects that we get have been reviewed through a gender lens. And then the second thing we do for transparency is the funding that we get to do any given project. We deposit that money into a community bank account and the community selects the two people they trust the most. We just have a third signatory from our side just to make sure that technical supervision is provided and the money is not siphoned off by the community. But all the procurement work is done by the community. So when they're drawing the money, they know exactly what they're paying for. They place the orders for the material themselves. We use them as labor. We pay them wages. So we create ownership as we go along. 
And it's this ownership which actually provides us with sustainability. And because there's complete transparency, there's great trust between us and the community. How difficult has it been to get some of the communities in which you are engaged to agree to the rule that women must be 40% of the people involved? I have to confess it was not easy in the beginning. And I think when you go in as an outsider to mountain communities, there is a lot of suspicion about your intent. They don't know why you've given up your city life, why you come to the wilderness, why you endure hardship conditions, why you live in villages where there is no electricity, no water, no sanitation facilities. So you have to be patient. You have to do the kind of things to earn their trust. And that is what I did. My initial five years were very difficult. Uh, I uh, faced opposition, I faced resistance, but I kept at it hoping that if they see the outcome of the work and they are handling the resources themselves and they start enjoying the benefits of the work that we are delivering for them, they may change their mind. And that's exactly what happened. And I think when we finished the first project, when we developed the campsites and the revenue started coming in and the money started going into their account, that is when they realized, yes, this is for us. She's not taking anything away from us. Uh, and that is when they also realized that if they want me to stay, they will have to provide 40% women representation because they're very conservative in this area. Their social constraints and traditional and cultural barriers that prevent them from allowing their women to associate, especially women from the city. So I think it was meeting them midway because I also had to change the way I dress and interact with them. And they came halfway. So it was like a midway connection that we made, but it took us five years. And now there's absolutely no problem. Do you think that the work that you are doing in the communities is changing more generally, either the way in which society is organized in those communities or the way that they approach environmental issues? I think climate change is becoming very palpable in their lives. They rely on flows of water at a specific time and a certain quantity of water. And when they see changes now, not occasionally, but in a constant way, every year, a variability, they're recognizing what we are telling them about climate change. Could you talk a bit more about how climate change is impacting the glaciers and the communities that rely upon them? Climate change is, you know, affecting hydrology because one of the most important things that is happening as a result of global warming is accelerated melting. And I was quite alarmed recently, I read a report from EC Mode that says till 2040, acceleration of melting will in increase many fold. And by maybe 2100, we will lose almost 70% of the mountain snow and glacial mass. Now that is going to be disastrous for these communities because that means till 2040, there'll be flooding, more intensity, more frequency, and that will take away the soil, the land, assets, house, lives, livelihoods, you name it, everything that they rely on for survival. And subsequently, there'll be shortage of water. So the, the changes in the hydrology are very closely linked to the ecological goods and services on which they rely very closely for their own sustenance. 
And that is why, you know, our efforts to strengthen their adaptive resilience, do what we can to reduce the impacts of floods in their lives, to provide them with reliable sources of water for irrigation, to deliver clean drinking water schemes at their doorstep, and now more recently, to support them with livelihood and enterprise development. So they have an alternative income generating opportunity. When you visited Stanford, your comments really highlighted for me the disproportionate impact of climate change. The communities that you've been discussing have virtually no contribution to climate change, and yet they are the ones that are going to be bearing the impact. I remember you mentioning when you came to Stanford that as a country, Pakistan's carbon footprint is minuscule, and yet it will pay a disproportionately high price in the economic losses associated with climate change. Can you talk about what that means for efforts to solve the problem of climate change? That's a very, uh, I think, interesting question because as part of a country that is in South Asia and part of the group of G77 that is part of the climate change negotiations, this is what the developing world says that we, together do not contribute to emissions as much as the developed world does. And yet there is a reluctance for them to reduce the emissions as quickly as the new uh, special report of the IPCC requires. Because according to the new report, as you recall, we don't have the luxury of 2050 anymore. And we don't have the luxury of two degrees Celsius anymore. We need to come down to 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold very quickly, and we need to do that by 2030. So that just gives us 10 years. So as a country, uh, we feel that we don't have the resources, we don't have the capacity, we don't have the technology, we are not contributors, and we're not getting enough external finance to make the adaptive um, changes that we need to bring about to safeguard the lives and properties of the people, especially the most vulnerable. And I think COVID has, has, has exposed the fragility of crises in, in our part of the, of the world, in um, yours as well, because you know, it has not spared anyone, but the countries that do not have enough resources to provide economic stimulus packages then have to suffer more. In thinking about the disproportionate impact of climate change, one problem I think is that nations have frequently been viewing climate change through a purely economic lens. You wrote a recent article in which you suggest that nations should have a moral mandate to address climate change. I'm curious as to how you think we might be able to get nations to recognize that type of a moral mandate. I think that is very important because at the end of the day, it will be a moral dilemma for us. Do some countries have the right to emit as much as they like without consequences of what happens in other parts of the world, how much suffering and hardship other people have to face? That's you know, something that we need to think about. And it's going to happen only when you have global leadership that thinks of humanity and not their own country first. So you have to look at it from that perspective that it is a collective responsibility and it should be unconscionable for people to think that we are doing something 
which is putting lives somewhere else in peril. I saw in another column that you've recently written a suggestion or at least a question of whether Pakistan should declare a climate emergency, a concept which I hadn't previously heard. Could you talk about what you meant by declaring a climate emergency? I think that, you know, as a nation, we don't talk enough about climate change. The present government, yes, it does attach importance to environmental sustainability, but climate change is seen as a very distant threat by most people. And it's coming upon us very quickly, and it's going to overwhelm us very quickly. So I think we should declare a climate emergency, which means we should be doing all the things to minimize the impact of climate change. And we should be engaging in more advocacy. The talk shows on television should be talking more about the climate threats. And we should be taking more action with regard to integrating climate change into all the policies at inception. And we should also track and code climate budgets so we know exactly how much we're spending on it, how much is actually required for the adaptation, and what is the gap for which we need to reach out to external financial windows for assistance. This brings us to the other organization that you founded and for which you won the Bright Award which is the Civil Society Coalition for Climate Change. Could you tell our listeners a bit about what the coalition does and how it goes about its work? It's, it's a networking platform and we felt the need to create this soon after the 2015 Paris Agreement. And the idea came to me after that, that if we want our voices to matter in any way, we need numbers. And you can only get numbers if you have a coalition and you bring all the stakeholders together under one banner. You remain autonomous, you remain independent in your decisions, in your way of working. But on climate issues, you come together to put pressure on the government. So we have nearly uh, 50 organizations uh, who are members of the coalition. And uh, up until COVID, we were very actively engaged because the advocacy and the contact was through organizing seminars and conferences. Uh, now we're switching to the webinar mode. And in some ways, I think uh, adversity sometimes teaches you how to use that as an opportunity or convert it into an opportunity. So now we are going to have many more webinars because you can reach out to people anywhere in the world without having to fly them down and put them up somewhere and organize something uh, in which you need to spend a lot of money. So with lesser money, we will perhaps be able to achieve the same target and perhaps in a more effective way. And what type of organizations are part of the coalition? They're all different kinds of organizations. Um, they're think tanks, they're organizations that work uh, on ground with communities in different sectors. Some are working on agriculture, some are working on water, some are working on giving loans to communities for livelihood and enterprise, some are doing vocational training, uh, some are academics, some are scientists. So it's a whole range, a different wide range of people who come together and each brings their own expertise. You recently wrote that the COVID-19 crisis may have opened up the opportunity to, and I'm going to quote you, 
unleash a global wave of mobilization to ensure a just and green recovery. I'm curious if you could sketch out what such a just and green recovery would look like in Pakistan. What would it be? Well, there are several things that are happening in Pakistan. When, when I wrote that, uh, what I meant was that, you know, since the economy has suffered so terribly globally, it is dented very badly. People will realize that climate change will be a much worse calamity. I mean, this was just one virus. Climate change will affect every aspect of their lives. So if they don't reform and change now and do what needs to be done to bring the temperature down within safe limits, they will, they will have a catastrophe on their hands. But in Pakistan, you know, we are doing certain things, uh, although I did say that we've gone back to business as usual, but there are several new exciting initiatives uh, under the Clean Green Pakistan program that have been announced by the government recently that gives me hope for a better environmental future. And uh, one of them is the 10 billion tree plantation campaign that was launched uh, recently. And uh, a lot of them have to do with some major ecosystem restoration programs. And this includes Recharge Pakistan. It includes reversing land degradation and conserving biodiversity, promoting the blue economy and restoration of marine protected areas, promoting ecotourism, introducing e-vehicles. And we're also aiming for a 30 degree mix of renewables in the energy sector. The good news is that usually when we say these things, we don't know where the money is coming from. In this case, we have the National Disaster Risk Management Fund, and it's getting money from the Asian Development Bank and a lot, lot of other countries, I think France and Australia and maybe even Switzerland. And the World Bank has more recently given it $188 million for the Eco Restoration Initiative. So we do think that if the fund is used well, transparently, and for all the five areas that I just shared with you, we should see some significant difference. That is a very exciting development. I wish I could see it in even more countries around the world. One of the things that you also wrote about last year is the importance of trying to address climate change, not only at a national level, but also at a regional level, like South Asia, to look at climate change with a regional lens and to work on more collaborative strategies to build resilience across an entire region, not just at a national level. Are you also seeing that type of regional collaboration growing? Presently, unfortunately not, given the tensions between our two countries right now, and, and the region as a whole in, in somewhat of a flux. But I'm hoping that in time, we will have the sense, every country in the region will have the sense to recognize that climate change is not going to affect any one country in isolation, that it's a collective issue, it's a regional issue, and we must address it from a regional lens. As we've been discussing, you are involved in a lot of different activities. With all the things that you're doing right now, what excites you the most? Oh, there are three new projects, by the way, that we're doing right now. And all three excite me because every time I go into, um, into the mountains and I interact with the communities, 
and I see the outcome of previous projects, it sort of incentivizes me and motivates me greatly to launch the new projects. So two of the projects that we are doing, they will replenish almost like 3.7 billion liters of water back to nature and community. They will provide food security to over 5,000 people, and they will also enhance uh, their social, economic, and environmental indicators through both quantitative and qualitative outcomes. The third project is particularly exciting for me because it is a disaster risk reduction project. We're developing or building a flood defense wall. And it's on the Indus River. It's going to save nearly uh, 800 hectares from erosion, and it's going to protect the lives of about 10,000 people spread across four villages. Whenever you describe your work, I can hear your voice light up. And I'm curious. It sounds as if despite all of the problems that you've identified and that you're having to deal with, you remain an optimist about our ability to solve them. Is that correct? I remain an optimist because, you know, I kind of localized my vision at one point in time to see what I am doing and the difference that is making in the lives of the community. Because if I look at the bigger picture, there's a lot happening that is very depressing. And that would perhaps deter me from doing what I'm doing because I end up saying or throwing my hands up in the air and saying, you know, what difference will this make? So I just say, I will do what I can. And if that is producing good results, that is enough to give meaning and purpose to my life. So I'm just looking at it from that lens. We felt very privileged to be able to give you the Bright Award last year for the fantastic work that you've been doing in the areas of climate change and community sustainability. I'm interested in how receiving the Bright Award has helped you in your work or in the work of the organizations that you've started. Well, I'm very excited. You know, I have great news and I was waiting for you to ask me that question because at the time we got the award, I had three objectives in my mind. One was to uh, strengthen our institutional capacity, and we have done that by improving our systemic functions and also by acquiring the services of better human resource, which has made a big difference. The second was to mobilize financial resources to deepen our interventions. We were aiming for a million dollars, and I'm happy to share with you that we have projects now that we're implementing this year worth $980,000. That's a little shy of a million, but pretty close to what we aimed for. Um, and this project, these projects with this money will be benefiting about 16,000 people living in one of the remotest parts of our country. And they will rehabilitate over 10,000 hectares of farmland. And the third thing that we wanted to do was to improve our organizational profile. And we've done very well on that front as well. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm part of the World Bank External Advisory Panel on Climate Change in South Asia for five years. I was invited to serve as the convener for the Climate Change and National Security Workshop at the National Security Division in the Prime Minister's office. And we've prepared a set of draft recommendations and shared it with the National Security Advisor. So I think that's a lot of things given the COVID constraints uh, in this short period of time that we were able to enhance our profile and our uh, resource mobilization and our delivery.
I mean, I must take this opportunity to thank uh, the Bright Award in Stanford University for shining the light on me and also in helping us highlight our work to a much wider audience. When you look forward, and I know you're constantly looking ahead rather than behind, when you're looking forward at Pakistan's future, at the future of the entire South Asian region, and even at the future of the world, What's your greatest hope? For South Asia region, um, I don't think I'm in a good position to be very optimistic. Although being an optimist, I still hope that one day before it's too late, countries in South Asia follow the, my 3C principle, which means collaborate, cooperate, and coordinate. And if we want to throw a fourth C into it, maybe we can say collective action. Uh, but maybe, maybe we still need to wait a little while for that. As for Pakistan, I think we are a population of 208 million and two thirds of our population is below the age of 30. That makes youth our biggest asset and greatest hope. Uh, if we are able to harness their ener energy and channel it in the right direction, I think we are going to make uh, good long strides in progress. I know many of our listeners, after hearing you in this podcast, are going to be very interested in learning more about your work and how they might be able to support the work that you're doing. Do you have any suggestions for where people can go to learn more about your work and how to support that work? We have a website, www.mgpo.org. So that gives all the information of what we do, how we do it, where we work and all our success stories as well. Asking for support is always difficult, but I think I'll just be upfront about it and say, we need to strengthen the adaptive resilience of com the communities we serve and we need financial assistance. And we are a uh, 501c3 registered company in the US. So anyone who wants to come forward and donate will help us to take our work to the next level. Aisha Khan, it has been a delight talking to you today. I thank you very much for being our guest today on The Bright Idea. Thank you. Thank you for having me and taking me back in time and recalling that glorious moment once again. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear more Bright Idea podcasts and to learn more about the 2020 Bright Award winner, Maria Ajinova, go to brightaward.com. Maria Ajinova is an indigenous leader working to protect snow leopard habitat and indigenous communities in Mongolia and Eastern Russia.